when we die, as the Buddha said, when we die, we can't take anything with us. We can't take our wealth, our possessions, all the people we like, we love, we can't take them with us. We have to separate from everything when we die. Um, so we should really bring our minds to the Dhamma now, train them in mindfulness and wisdom so that we have a true refuge inside because these external things we can't take with us. Um, really we should look at our lives now and see that human beings we are just like visitors to the world. We don't stay here for very long, we come into the world, live our lives and then we leave again. Um, at the time we're in this world, we tend to think we're the owners of the world. We say, we own our house, we own this, we own that. But really, if you get the wider picture, the, the picture that comes from wisdom, you can see, oh, we're not really the owners of everything. We have to leave everything behind. So this is only all the more reason why we should practice the Dhamma. We should practice meditation and dedicate ourselves to this. Because in the end, nothing is ours. We, we have to leave it all. And when we can practice the Dhamma, what we develop with our mindfulness and our understanding is the ability to let go of the states of mind, the different akusala, unwholesome mental states which cause us suffering. The more mindfulness and awareness we have, we can see that all oh, this is suffering, all, all these desires and different thoughts which cause suffering, which feed attachment to the world, we can see all oh, this is the source of suffering we can let them, let them go through our practice and find much more inner peace, inner happiness. We should contemplate this every day that the only thing that is really certain in life is the fact that one day we have to die. And nothing else is certain. The experiences we'll have are very unsure. We can't be sure what we're going to see and hear and experience. But we can be sure we'll die. And we should be thinking that now even if we're consider ourselves still young, say you're just 40 years old, you might think, oh, I've got a long way to go till I die, but it's not sure, we can't be sure how long we've got and when we're actually going to die. And when we contemplate this like this, it makes us careful, careful with what we do with our minds, with our speech, our actions. We don't want to be careless or heedless. Um, so we dedicate our efforts to the practice um, contemplating like this, training our minds. When we practice developing mindfulness, what, what we turn our mindfulness to contemplate, use the mind that is aware of the truth, we turn it to contemplate anicca, dukkha, anatta, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the lack of self in all phenomena, that means all physical phenomena around us in the world, either this body or the physical world, and mental phenomena. Uh, our own thoughts, feelings, memories, these are all subject to anicca, dukkha, anatta. Uh, they're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're not self. And the more we have mindfulness and the more we contemplate to see this, then the more we can let go of these things. We're not um, deluded by the world. And we can see that you know, we come into this world, we're here temporarily and then we leave when we die. And all these experiences aren't worth attaching to. With, with a mind of wisdom and understanding, we see there's not much point in attaching to these things because we have to lose them, we have to separate from them, nothing is permanent. And so little by little, we can let go of our attachment to what we say, sensuality, the, the sensual world which we experience through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue and touch. And 
this is the way that the mind comes to inner peace when it lets go of its attachment to these things all that's left is the mindfulness, the wisdom inside the mind, inside the heart asking if anyone has any questions Eckley, do you have anything to ask today? Yeah, asking many questions. And just now when the group are talking, you know, I, I seem to be able to follow exactly what you're saying, you know, that, like, you know, I don't know how to hear it, say it, you know, let together say it together with you. It's very strange. And usually when you hear it, then you, you, yeah. But this one, like, you know, I'm talking together with you, my mind. So you think that something trouble faster than what or whatever? What happened? No, mm. like what? I it's a good thing. Is it a good thing? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what he said. Is it the... It's just a sign that your mindfulness is actually a little bit better, a little stronger at the moment. And that's the result of practicing for many days. I think there's a question, it's not a question, you know. I know I've been asking a lot of questions in the past. But uh, sometimes I notice that I'm not really interested in the answer. Just the question itself, you know. And then I keep contemplating that question, you know. Asking myself, why the question? Why that question, you know? And then I can develop a very deep understanding at the end of it. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the teachers answer detail, but sometimes, you know, I can't remember what they say. All I'm interested in is the question. But certain time, I think, you know, I ask the question because, you know, maybe I go for praise, people say that, oh, you ask good questions. Sometimes it's like that. I, I didn't know this then. So, in conclusion, and I was thinking that question actually is also a, well, this is a big word, proliferation in the mind. So, should I ask or not ask? You know? It's important to see that why do we ask questions or the reason we ask questions is to help us understand clearer the way to practice the Dhamma the way to practice the teachings so in that sense asking questions can be a good thing because it helps us to give give us more when we get an answer then we can understand more and we can practice more in a correct way but of course as you say asking questions does come from mental proliferation and it can also stimulate more mental proliferation, just thinking questions, listening to the answers, contemplating it. That's the danger, that it can take us away from mindfulness. We can get caught too much into the intellectual side of the, uh, the Dhamma. So, I guess you have to have moderation in just seeing the results of your question asking. If, if it genuinely helps you to understand better, and that stimulates more practice and you become more peaceful, the results are good, but if it's questioning, asking questions leads to more, more questions, more proliferation, more the mind is more disturbed, stirred up, then society perhaps it's going too far. Um, and in the end, what uh, the aim of our practice is always to bring ourselves to mindfulness states where there's good mindfulness awareness, concentration is arising, so there's a sense of calm. And then we can develop what we call Pawanamayapanya, which is like the, the wisdom, the insight that comes from the still, quiet mind. And when you're developing that, you, you might have a question arise in your mind, but you won't need to ask anyone else. You actually have enough 
experience and enough wisdom from your arising from your own contemplation that the answer comes itself internally. That's what you're aiming for in the practice, get to that point where you can actually answer your own questions. When we contemplate the Dhamma, contemplate truth, we have to do this in the correct way, a skillful way. So, if you're contemplating the impermanence, say, nature, and we reflect to see, oh, this body, we come into the world, it's impermanent, and you might get to the point where you're seeing that everybody, ourselves, everybody else, we're all pretty much just flowing towards our death. There's, there's no way out of that. We all have to end up dying. But you want to contemplate this in a skillful way so it arouses urgency and energy in the practice. Um, when By seeing impermanence, then we want to carry on to develop more mindfulness, um, more wisdom so that we can let go of our attachments and bring our mind to greater peace. If contemplating, say, death or impermanence brings one to the sense of uh, depression, one sees oh, it's meaningless, depressing life, that we're just all going to die, say, one has that kind of negative reaction, then one has to stop and say, oh, this isn't going in the right direction, it's not bringing the, the correct results. It's actually making my mind more depressed, more unwholesome. So, as we contemplate and practice the Dharma, we have to always look at the results of what we're doing and to, to gauge and, and see whether we're really practicing in the correct way and the results are uh, to be seen in the reaction and the results coming up in our mind. If our mind is having more energy in the practice, more effort and more peace, then that's a sign it's going in the right way. But the contemplation of death, Ajahn Chah recommended particularly at times when our mind is very, very stirred up, agitated and restless because it's it's such a powerful uh, recollection. And so say if the mind is really overwhelmed by some aspect of greed or uh, anger or just deluded by things, confused, doubting, then when we turn to contemplate death, it will cut through that, the restless, the agitated thinking of the mind very well because it brings a very a sense of finality to the mind. It's said, oh, when I'm going to die soon, um, it will cut through all these other, perhaps less important, more secondary thoughts that are bothering the mind at that time. That is a very useful meditation technique. I can explain the difference function between the Vimamsa and the foreign sea and the seven factors of the Dhamma Vichaya. If we talk about Vimamsa, use of wisdom to contemplate. Uh, Vimanksa comes into the four, um, we say the four paths to success, or roads to success. The Buddha gave us, it's quite a general teaching. It's Chanta, Viriyajita, Vimanksa. It's talking about these four qualities of mind that one needs if one wants to be successful uh, in anything. And he, he didn't necessarily apply to one thing or the other. It's more a general um, teaching of the different qualities of mind that one needs to be successful. So you need chanta. Uh, say so in terms of successful Dhamma practice, you need chanta meaning have that desire, that, that sense of happiness, contentment to be practicing based on seeing the danger, the harm and the suffering that comes from attachment to the world and um, attachment to different mental defilements which cause suffering in the mind. When you see that then you want to 
practice to find a way out of that suffering, to find some inner peace, then you have chanta. And with chanta that will lead on to wiriya, meaning effort and energy. You only have effort and energy to do anything, whether it's practice, whether it's work, or whatever. If you have a basic contentment to be doing that thing, you see the value of it and you're content and satisfied to be doing that thing, then you'll have effort and energy to do to put into it. And if you're going to be successful in whatever task you are doing, then um, you need jitta, which is, means like a mind that is focused and firm, firmly focused on that work, that task, whether it's the practice, say a practice of contemplating or even just some job of work you want to do. If, you, if you're focused on it, you stick with it, then you, you can do it successfully. And the last quality we monks are, you need to be able to contemplate, to analyze, to um, contemplate and reflect in your mind to see what are the obstacles to this job becoming completed and successful, and what do I need to do to complete it and be successful, uh, have I completed and been successful in this job yet or not. These kind of reflections one has to have with monks are that function of the mind, the wisdom, the intelligence of the mind, reflecting to see what, what's needed to do to make that particular thing successful, that task or that aspect of the practice. Whereas Dhamma Vichaya, as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, it's also using the wisdom faculty, but it's very much directed to contemplating uh, Dhamma and contemplating in a way to see the truth of things, to let go of attachments, as maybe contemplating Anicca Dukkha Anitta, uh, wisely reflecting, contemplating those characteristics as a way to uh, free the mind from attachment. And this also leads on to Wiriya, energy in the practice, but Piti, Vasati, uh, joy and rapture of mind, of body, uh, Samadhi, the firmness of mind, and Upeka, the equanimity. In this sense, it's a more specific teaching that Buddha is saying if you're to become enlightened, the mind is to clearly see the true nature of things, uproot its attachments, its defilements, then you have to do this, and it's not, the seven factors have to be there and followed. So it's a much more specific thing directed towards the, those factors which give rise to enlightenment in the mind. Ajahn, is contemplating means wisely thinking or wisely thinking? You could say the um, practice of wise reflection, wise thinking or contemplating is done on different levels. So in the beginning of practice, your wise contemplation or wise reflection is aimed at uh, finding skillful means to overcome the hindrances, the five hindrances that block the arising of wholesome states of mind and particularly are obstructing the arising of peaceful states of concentration, samadhi. So one uses wise reflection to deal with the different hindrances in the mind, whether it's uh, attachment, greed, desire, anger, worry. One uses contemplation to help deal with those, to bring the mind to a sense of peace and calm. Uh, and one also uses one uses particular meditation objects that could be the recollection of death or recollection of the qualities of the Buddha uh, or Anapanasati and any of those meditation objects meditation techniques you are using wise thinking to direct your mind to that object and to 
become um, concentrated on that object successfully, you have to use wise reflection to do that. As you experience states of calm and peaceful concentration though, then you use that as a basis for contemplation. But this on, on this level when the mind is already peaceful and concentrated and then one turns to contemplate Dhamma, there's not much thinking involved. It's what we call Pawana Maya Panya, which is more just knowing and clear seeing. And this is a bit different from just the ordinary kind of wise reflection that you might do in the preliminaries of the practice. This is clear seeing. So for instance, one practicing meditation becomes very peaceful and concentrated. And then say in the forest, one sees a, tree, a leaf drop off a tree because it's dried out, it's died, it drops off. Um, contemplating like this means one might just see that leaf drop and then one turns one's attention back to this body and knows, ah, oh, this body has to die just like this leaf has to die and drop off the tree. And there's just a clear knowing of that. And maybe seeing that in everyone, then everyone else one meets, one knows, ah, oh, everyone else is the same, I have to die, they have to die. And there's that clear perception and knowing of the impermanence of conditions of sankharas, of mental conditions, physical conditions. That's just something one knows and clearly sees without thinking. So at that level it's still contemplation but it's without a lot of thinking, it's just knowing something. Something that means well, because of your practice it automatically comes that understanding. So there is bound and find Yeah. Why why certain people when they experience the disappearing of the body they can uh, you know, just accept it, or others, you know, they get a fright and a, a lot of fear come up. The main reasons fear might arise is once meditating and it seems that the body becomes very light and seems to disappear. Um, at that stage, the fear might arise mainly through just inexperience, yeah. unfamiliarity with the practice of samadhi and these different conditions and states that arise, one's not familiar with them, so they're, they're new, they're strange, and so they trigger a sense of, oh, what, what's this, and the mind, instead of relaxing and just continuing meditating to a more refined level, um, the mind comes out, because of the fear, comes out of that state, starts thinking, proliferating again, oh, what was that, panicking, um, so the, the main way to deal with that is just keep practicing regularly and one becomes more familiar with the whole state of the mind calming down the different conditions of the different kinds of rapture and happiness that arise and one becomes familiar with it through regular practice and it's no longer strange, unusual or frightening just like, oh, when you practice samadhi it's like this the mind knows so that when it's no, it knows something it's familiar it won't be afraid and it won't come out of that state, it will be happy to stay in that state because it you know, trusts itself. Yeah, but but I, I don't know whether it's because of that experience, you know, I noticed that my meditation uh, seems so that every time I want to go into deep uh, concentration, something is holding me back, you know, I just couldn't completely let go of that before. This feeling of being pulled back, really, it's just a sign that at that time in our meditation, our mindfulness has kind of run out of its energy. We've done it, put all our effort into developing mindfulness and concentration at that point, and we've reached our limits. 
of our mindfulness and so the kilesas, different attachments and desires are able to pull the mind back and start thinking again. So the only thing to do is keep practicing, keep training yourself. Little by little your mindfulness will become firmer and your concentration more steady and then you, know, you won't experience that coming back or being pulled back. Your mind will just stay stable and firm so keep going deeper. But it's a gradual thing, little by little. As we improve our mindfulness, one will go deeper into deeper states of peace. I wasn't sure whether it's because I was attached to my body that I need to do the, some contemplation in my body. There's several factors. One is yes, we're still attached to the body, and the other is just the strength of our samadhi and our mindfulness is too weak. We haven't trained enough, practiced enough. If you keep practicing training, then you'll be able to push through, let go of that concern about the body, and go in much deeper. So it's a matter of time and practice. One thing may ask a very mundane question. In Sri Lanka, it's, uh, most of the time when we are uh, worshipping, that's very I see that on the Sivaran is having this posture and all of you are in separate. Is that something to do with the kind of guru and uh, it's a, this this posture I'm sitting in is that we're trained to sit like this as monks have a respect for the Dhamma, for listening to Dhamma talks or chanting the Dhamma teachings. But when we meditate, we sit cross-legged like this. So is there any disrespect if we sit like this in front of you? It's just custom, and the custom of Sri Lanka is like this, that's fine. The Thai, Thai custom is to sit like this, and so because we've been trained, uh, the roots of our training is Thai, so we're trained like this. This is the Thai tradition, yes, but you were just saying in Sri Lanka the tradition is to sit cross-legged, and that's fine as well. It's, one shouldn't feel that there's something wrong sitting cross-legged, that's the culture, the tradition, that's fine. So left or right doesn't matter? Doesn't matter. I change it to for comfort. Yeah, you'll find after a long time <laughs> you can't sit for very long. But there is a tender attachment also, I think. The, the ladies are asked to sit like that. I don't know. That's yeah, how the tradition is. Yeah, females like this, and they sit like that. Oh, for the monks, will, even the men, the monks will sit like this for a down talk. They'll sit. Cause a lot of suffering to the Western monks because they have to learn to sit and it's quite painful. When I was a young monk, sometimes you have all night Dhamma teaching from 7 in the evening, maybe till 5 in the morning, and you're supposed to sit in this posture all the time. But you can change. You can change. But after a while, when you change, it doesn't make any difference. Your legs are on fire. He said normally he'd be sitting like this, but because there were many Sri Lankans, he'd probably sit like this. <laughs> he's been to Sri Lanka before and he's talking to everyone, everyone was sitting like this, so he remembered he sat like this. Since the tradition probably comes from um, the training monks have to learn how to sit in a graceful way, in a mindful, graceful way, and the dress of monks is similar to a lady, and we have a, a skirt, a wrap around, so 
to sit, it's like a lady has to learn to sit gracefully and mindfully, so monks and ladies, they have that in common. And that general was just teaching about, he's asked about what to do with someone in the household who maybe is unskillful with their speech and always being uh, rude and critical about other people, always seem to know better than other people. Um, and he said, well, try to point out the importance of reflecting on our speech to see if it's correct, to reflect on if we say something and if we're critical or rude to others, well, what is the result? Do they feel good, feel pleased to hear those words? Do we feel good afterwards when they remember those words? Um, sometimes, though, these people, you, you explain all this and they still they don't get the point. They still can't control themselves. You know, they say yes, yes, and then a few days later they're doing it again. So he said, well, in that case, if it's someone who's very, very difficult to train or change, then all you can do is change yourself. So you might have to be very patient, and you just practice your meditation as they're speaking. You don't agree with them, you don't encourage them, even though uh, you've told them and this isn't a good habit. If they can't see it yet and they don't change, all you can do is the self. You just keep practicing mindfulness yourself uh, and just have to bear with it and be patient. And then they said, this person even goes to the temple regularly. Uh, and Jen said, well, some people go to the temple, but they never really see the temple. They go to the temple, they see the outside of the temple, they see the trees, the buildings, and the outside appearance, but they don't really find the inner temple, meaning that they don't go and develop um, the mindfulness, the restraint, the qualities that the temple is encouraging people to bring up. Um, it's like this teaching, you know, what the Patimokra, it says, abandon unwholesome dhammas and develop good dhammas and do mer- meritorious things. And people love to go to the temple and do meritorious things, but often they forget to abandon the unwholesome things. So they never really progress in their practice. So they're, they're trying to do good, but they're forgetting that they also have to give up the, the unwholesome, unskillful habits that they have. You have two children, you're asking how many boys, how many children? Two, you know, you love one. Since nowadays in a country like Australia, if you have a few children, the cost is quite a lot, isn't it? You have to pay for everything, for their education, for their entertainment, their pastimes, sports, all the different activities they do. By the time they've grown into adults, you spend a lot of money to have to work and earn a lot of money to look after them all. Isn't it because of the karma that we had to take and back? You have to remember that as a parent, we're what we call bupakari, which means we're the, the first ones, the beginning of their, their life in the world, we're the first ones to help them, and help them in every way, their material way, help, material help, education, and spiritual as well, and you lead them to the Dharma. And the qualities of a Bhubhakari, they have the four Brahmaviharas. And with your children, you have to have those four, not just one or two Brahmaviharas. You have to have all four. You have to have the metta, the well-wishing, the karuna, the wishing that they don't have suffering or that they free themselves from suffering. The mudita for when they're successful. We have to share in their success, be happy for them when they're successful. And Upeka, we also have to understand that they have their karma and they're going to be affected by their own karma that they've created and are creating. Um, and the other quality of the Pukakari is that you have to be, you know, you help your kids without wishing anything in return. We have to do develop that. If you don't have it already, you have to develop that attitude that you just help 
because that's your duty as a Bukhakari, bringing them into the world, you shouldn't be looking for anything in return or just has to give. That's the appropriate attitude. Probably enough for today, so I'll be after one o'clock.